We've been speaking about Buddha nature and trying to understand Tantra in terms of uh, Buddha nature. And we've seen that uh, Buddha nature is referring to, first of all, the uh, two networks of positive force and deep awareness. And these can evolve, in other words, they give rise to something because uh, they are uh, affected by causes and conditions. Obviously, they are built up more and more by uh, our experience, by uh, positive force built up by the compulsive, constructive behavior that we do. And the way that our mind functions, that's the network of deep awareness mixed with confusion. And in this case, when uh, we're building up positive force with our compulsive, positive, uh, constructive behavior and our minds operating filled with uh, confusion or ignorance, then this uh, network of positive force and deep awareness give rise to the more, what should we say, better states of rebirth and the more pleasant things that happen during such rebirths. Of course, we have a network of negative force from the destructive things that uh, we do as well, but that is not referred to as Buddha nature. But uh, when instead of uh, compulsive karmic constructive behavior mixed with confusion and ignorance, we have our constructive behavior moved with compassion and not mixed with confusion and dedicated to enlightenment with uh, bodhicitta, then our Buddha nature factors can evolve and grow to give rise to the various bodies of a Buddha, referring specifically to body, speech, and mind of a Buddha. And the uh, fact that uh, our mental continuum is devoid of existing in impossible ways, in other words, the voidness of our mental continuum on which these networks are imputed, because of that, then it's possible that these networks can operate through cause and effect to give rise to either samsaric situation or our attainment of enlightenment. And because the nature of the mind is uh, void of true existence, and therefore in its nature has the true stoppings, you know, it was never stained on its deepest level by the uh, ignorance and its habits and so on. This is the case not only in samsara, but also the case when we are enlightened. And so that is the so-called nature body of a Buddha voidness of a Buddha's mind and the true stoppings on the mind of a Buddha. And in a samsaric situation, these networks give rise to a limited body, limited uh, speech, gives rise to happiness mixed with confusion, unsatisfying, gives rise to compulsive, positive behavior mixed with confusion, both in our speech and in our actions, in our thinking, and gives rise to so-called polluted environment, stained environment in which we live. But as a Buddha, if these uh, networks are mixed or uh, motivated by or accompanied by bodhicitta and the understanding of voidness, 
then they give rise to physical body of a Buddha, speech of a Buddha, blissful mind of a Buddha, the uh, enlightening activities of a Buddha, and the pure land of uh, Buddhas. So as a way of uh, being able to uh, attain that state of Buddhahood more efficiently, we uh, work with these uh, Buddha figures in uh, Tantra, which are like an infographic representing all the different aspects of the uh, path, all the realizations that we need in order to attain enlightenment. So they help us to keep all of that uh, in mind at once. It's integrated together. And we imagine now that uh, we have similar to what we would attain as a Buddha. So an enlightening body like of the uh, deity, that our way of enjoying uh, things is with a sort of untainted bliss, it's called, bliss that's not mixed with confusion. So we do that when we uh, uh, make offerings to ourselves. We imagine that we enjoy this purely. And uh, uh, also that uh, with that blissful mind, we understand voidness. And uh, we imagine that uh, our activities are like that of a Buddha. So we imagine while we're visualizing ourselves as the Buddha, with blissful awareness of voidness, that uh, we emanate all these lights and so on that uh, bring happiness, alleviate the suffering to uh, all beings while we recite mantra. It's enlightening speech as well, and enlightening activity at the same time, keeping in mind all beings, with all, and keeping in mind as well all the different aspects of the path that uh, this, uh, the arms and legs of the Buddha figure represent, and all these beings are in a pure land in which everything is conducive for attaining enlightenment. It's represented by mandala, palace. And all the architectural features of the building of the palace as well represent different aspects of realization. And although we could uh, try to imagine all beings around us, so an enormous crowd uh, with uh, men and women and people that we are close to and people that uh, normally we don't like and so on, uh, that's not the easiest thing to do. So we can also imagine that uh, we are like a sun just emanating all of this, and anyone that comes uh, out into the sunshine is going to be positively affected. So we have this uh, parallelism between the basis, what we want to get rid of, which is the samsaric ripening of these uh, uh, Buddha nature factors. We have, so we renounce that. We have bodhicitta, we aim for that enlightened state of a Buddha. And we have the Buddha nature factors giving rise to these Buddha figures in our imagination to start with. That's on the generation stage of highest class of Tantra, Nutra Yoga, or our subtle energy system giving rise to this, which is what happens on the complete stage. And they're all parallel, these three levels. And these visualizations, which are basically something from our imagination. You shouldn't think visualization just means visual. It's not just images, but it's, uh, you know, the whole thing in terms of uh, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, you know, everything. So it's imagination. So 
uh, what we uh, imagine on the path with uh, Tantra is uh, going to be a uh, representation of our own enlightenment, which has not yet happened, our own individual enlightenment, which has not yet happened. So it's a focus for our bodhicitta. And remember, there are uh, two aspects of uh, bodhicitta. We're not speaking here in terms of aspiring and engaged bodhicitta. That's something, that's another division, which we aim to attain enlightenment, and then we engage in the practices that will bring us there. But uh, we also speak of conventional bodhicitta and deepest bodhicitta. So with conventional bodhicitta, we are aimed at the body, speech, and mind of our not-yet-happening enlightenment. So Nirmanakaya is body, Sambhogakaya is speech in Tantra, and uh, the uh, deep awareness Dharmakaya, the omniscient mind of a Buddha, is mind. So with conventional bodhicitta, we are aimed at that. And with deepest bodhicitta, we are aimed at the voidness of the body, speech, and mind of a Buddha. So that's nature body. So we have deepest, we have conventional and deepest bodhicitta. And with those two, we aim at all four bodies of a Buddha. Represented with uh, the uh, Nidam, the Buddha figure, and the voidness at least our understanding of voidness at, uh, when we're not yet enlightened. So conventional bodhicitta is involved with the evolving bodhicitta, not evolving uh, Buddha nature factors, and deepest bodhicitta is involved with the abiding Buddha nature factors. And remember the uh, two networks, these evolving Buddha nature factors, are imputations on a mental continuum. Or if we want to be more technically precise in the Prasangika system, the imputations on the conventional me, which is an imputation on the uh, five aggregates in general, or more specifically on the clear light level of mind and subtle energy. So it gets down to mind, basically. And when we talk about voidness, we're talking about the voidness of the mind, not the voidness of uh, the vase or the pillar. So if we transfer this whole thing into <laughs> a whole discussion into a Mahamudra or Dzogchen presentation, then uh, we're speaking about the uh, conventional nature of the mind, which can give rise to these appearances, either impure appearance of uh, samsara or the pure appearance of enlightenment, conventional nature of the mind, and again, the deepest nature of the mind is voidness. So basically, it's just a different way of looking at the exactly same thing, regardless of which system we're practicing Tantra in. Okay, now, third Buddha nature factor was that it can be, that these networks can be stimulated. They can uh, be stimulated by enlightening influence of a Buddha and of our spiritual teachers. And if we look at our, uh, the function of an initiation in Tantra, which literally uh, the word means an empowerment, during the empowerment, we, first of all, what it is going to do is to activate these Buddha nature factors. In other words, activate these networks so that they can give rise to these enlightening uh, aspects. 
and it plants more seeds, in other words, it uh, strengthens these networks. Because during the empowerment, we, uh, in order for the empowerment to actually serve as an empowerment, and not just, you know, we're uh, a neutral observer, just uh, watching it like uh, some uh, performance in a theater, we have to have some actual conscious experience during the uh, empowerment. This is described in the commentaries very clearly. So some experience of imagining ourselves in the form of this uh, Buddha figure, and most importantly, uh, some experience of bodhicitta and focusing on voidness at whatever level we can with whatever level of blissful mind we can generate. So it can be a very, very minimal level of this, but at least something, conscious experience, and that activates these uh, Buddha nature factors together with the positive influence, the stimulation of the teacher, so that they can start to go in that direction of giving rise to the mind, or attaining to the mind. And the role of the spiritual teacher here, the tantric master, is essential for many reasons. But uh, one of the uh, reasons which is emphasized so much is we see, which means we discern, we distinguish, distinguish is the correct word, we distinguish, that's the aggregate of distinguishing. So we distinguish the teacher as Buddha. So what does that mean? Buddha in the form of the Buddha figure. So it's the same thing. We see on the basis of the Buddha nature factors in the teacher, not yet happening enlightenment. Enlightened being, but it's not yet happening now. We don't, you know, we're not naive to think that our teacher knows, as I often use the silly example, the telephone number of every person on this planet. They're not omniscient in that sense, literally. But that's irrelevant. We're thinking in terms of the not yet happening enlightenment. Teacher is an enlightened being in that sense. And if we can focus on the teacher like that, that inspires us to be able to focus on ourselves like that with the Tantra practice. So this is a very essential aspect in terms of our relation with the teacher. This is an extension of how we develop the proper attitude toward the teacher in Sutra. Healthy relation to the teacher in terms of our attitude has two aspects. First one is we focus on the good qualities of a teacher. Teacher might have shortcomings as well, but there's no point in complaining about that and focusing on that. But we focus on the good qualities with confidence that the teacher actually has them. So these have to be actual good qualities, not ones that we exaggerate or made up. So with great admiration and respect for good qualities. So as I said, teacher serves as a model. We want to become like that. And the second aspect is being mindful, remembering the kindness of the teacher to actually teach us that we develop a sincere appreciation and gratitude for that kindness. That's the healthy attitude to have with the teacher. That word that's translated as guru devotion, terrible translation. Actually, the uh, word means to rely on somebody with trust and confidence. 
It's the type of relation that you would have with your doctor. You have trust because you're confident in the good qualities that the person actually has, and you are also confident that they're kind. They're going to help you. You appreciate their kindness. And you would have that with a doctor, and you have that with a spiritual teacher. And by respecting the good qualities in the teacher and appreciating the kindness of the teacher, if we can do that, that forms the basis for us to be able to recognize our own good qualities and respect them and appreciate the kindness that we have shown to ourselves that has allowed us to get a precious human rebirth, meet with the Dharma teachings, and have the opportunities to practice. Unless we have that positive attitude toward ourselves, we're never going to make progress on the path. So just as practicing, focusing on the good qualities and the kindness of the teacher allows us to appreciate it in ourselves, then we add on top of that in Tantra, being able to see the not yet happening enlightenment of the teacher allows us to focus not only on that in the teacher, but in ourselves. Structure, the mechanism is exactly the same. Digest that for a moment. This is very important and very profound, actually. So with the proper attitude toward the teacher and the proper distinguishing, not yet happening enlightenment of the teacher that stimulates our ability to see that in ourselves and stimulates that, uh, these networks within ourselves to give rise to enlightenment also, detainment of enlightenment, to be more specific. So then... Second reason why the teacher is so essential is because we receive from the teacher during the empowerment the bodhisattva vows for all classes of tantra and the tantric vows for the two highest classes of tantra, yoga tantra and anusra yoga tantra. We're practicing Dzogchen, you have these in the uh, Maha, Anu and Ati yoga practices. Vows. So, why are the vows so important? Why do we say, I'm not going to give them up at the cost of my life? That's said so often in uh, the text. And so naturally, we should wonder, why is that so stressed in the text? I mean, it's pretty heavy. I'm not going to give them up at the cost of my life. So now we have to go back to the discussion of uh, beginningless 
rebirth, beginningless mental continuum. Given beginningless time, we have undoubtedly developed bodhicitta many, many times. You see the uh, analysis of uh, developing bodhicitta like this, derived from the question, how is it that uh, you have an explanation in Jataka stories, for example, of Buddha developing bodhicitta for the first time. So then one wonders, given beginningless time, how can there be a first time? This is the question for analysis. Of, you know, what, what is actually that talking about? See, this is the beauty of the Dharma. There's so many uh, unanswered <laughs> or <laughs> unclear questions that one can ask. And if you really want to go deeply and deeper and deeper into the Dharma, you have to tackle these questions. So analytical meditation, try to figure it out. So I tried to figure it out. I made an analysis by myself and came up with a hypothesis. And then I presented it to my class in Berlin. And rather than us debating in the standard uh, Tibetan form, we discussed it and worked it out as a class together, which is a wonderful thing to do, by the way. Right? That's real Dharma work, to try to figure it out. So we helped each other with that. And one of my students pointed out that given beginningless time, then it follows that not only have we developed bodhicitta countless times, we've also given up bodhicitta countless times. So the question isn't really how to develop bodhicitta for the first time. The question is how to develop bodhicitta for the first time and not give it up. Because the first time that you do that, well, then you will attain enlightenment. So I have to thank one of my students for analyzing and coming up with that. It's correct. So what does it mean to not give up bodhicitta? That means to keep the bodhisattva vows and you don't want to give them up and lose them because it's going to take an unbelievable number of eons before you're going to develop bodhicitta again. So for that reason, I really don't want to give them up these bodhisattva vows that keep me focused on enlightenment and you lose them when you say, this is stupid, I don't want to attain enlightenment, this is impossible, you know, I don't care if everybody goes to hell. You know, I'm just, uh, I'm not interested anymore. So you think that, bam! You are really, I mean, the description is that uh, you fall to a hellish rebirth because then your life has no meaning, no direction, everything is stupid. And what are you left with? Not very much. And that's going to take an awful long time to overcome that. So you don't want to give this up at the cost of your life. This is what it means. And we lose the tantric vows as well if you give up bodhicitta. So, similar type of thing. So, very, very important, the uh, bodhisattva vows. And so, after we recite the verses that uh, reaffirm and strengthen our taking of the vows and all the tantric practices, we say, now my life has become really meaningful. How wonderful. Now I'm really not going to give this up. You know, that uh, after, you know, such an unbelievable amount of time, I'm not going to yet again take them and give it up. 
So, said very clearly in the text, you do not receive an empowerment unless you consciously take the vows. To just be there and just blindly blah, 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 repeat the verses for taking the vows, but you don't actually consciously feel that you have taken the vows, you know, the conscious decision, you haven't received the vows. So taking the vows has to be a very conscious experience, decision, conscious decision. And then, remember we were speaking of, in terms of karma, non-revealing forms, this subtle like vibration that uh, is a form on the imputed on the mental continuum. Vows are the same type of phenomenon. It's a non-revealing form. And like these non-revealing forms of uh, karma, that uh, it stays there until you say, you know, well, I'm no longer going to act like this. You know, this is stupid, give it up. So likewise, that non-revealing form of the bodhisattva vows and the tantric vows stay imputed on the mental continuum until you give it up. You can weaken it, but you give it up. It's no longer there. And that non-revealing form, subtle vibration, is going to stay as an imputation on the mental continuum, even if you're reborn as an insect. It's still there. You haven't given it up. So in another lifetime, you become a human. Well, it's still there. It can be reactivated. So it's not like Pradimoksha vows that you take just for this lifetime. But uh, when we take the Bodhisattva and Tantric vows, we say, from now until my attainment of enlightenment. So... It's there, that non-revealing form is an imputation on the mental continuum all the way until enlightenment, unless you give it up, lose it. You say, to hell with this, this is stupid. So focus for a moment on the importance of these vows. The vows, in a sense, shape our behavior, the form. They set the boundaries beyond which we are not going to go. And staying within the boundaries of these vows, we act in a way as we would the Buddha. Now, we have to add one more thing here. What is constructive behavior, right? This is what we derive this uh, network of positive force from. Constructive behavior, there are two levels of it. The merely constructive behavior is to refrain from destructive behavior. It's a restraint. So it's not simply, you know, not hunting, not, ki- not fishing. Well, I don't hunt and I don't fish anyway. I have no interest in hunting or fishing. So that's not keeping the vow, the vow of not killing, not taking a life. We keep the vow when there's a mosquito, you know, buzzing around our face or a fly buzzing around our face. And we have, we feel like, swatting at it and killing it, and we discriminate, that would be destructive, it would lead to all sorts of, you know, building up a habit that anything I don't like, I just want to kill and destroy. 
and I refrain from acting out that feeling. That's keeping the vow. That's the constructive behavior, is not doing it when we feel like doing it. Referring to something destructive. Mm -hmm. Destructive means under the influence of disturbing emotions. Then, distinguished uh, constructive behavior is instead of killing, you do something to support the life of others, help them in some way, give them food, get, you know, whatever, save their life. If there's a fly, you know, drowning in the toilet, you save its life. So what is a vow? A vow, as I said, it's this non-revealing form, but what is it actually the form of? And it's the form of a restraint. So the vows are always formulated in terms of what would cause a downfall from the vows. So giving up bodhicitta. So the vow is not to give up bodhicitta. So it's a refraint from something. And we also have a term called, uh, in uh, Sanskrit, samaya, in Tibetan, tamsik. This is uh, translated all sorts of different ways, but it uh, literally means a close bond, a close connection. And as opposed to a vow, which is a refraint from doing something negative, this is the promise or bond to do something positive, something constructive in this distinguished constructive way. So always to make offerings, etc., that type of thing. Always to develop love. Vow would be not to give up love to any, you know, to anybody, and the close bond would be to have love for everybody. So vow and this close bond Corresponding practices are in the same structure as the merely constructive and the distinguished constructive type of behavior, right? Now we're talking about Buddha nature, this network of positive force. So just doing merely constructive actions and distinguished constructive actions mixed with confusion, etc., that gives rise to samsara, nice samsara. But if we, in addition to bodhicitta and the understanding of voidness, if in addition we have the vows and these corresponding practices, it gives much more strength to that network, positive force. This is clear from the teachings on karma. And that's what we want to do. We want to give even stronger boost to, this, uh, to these networks so that they really will give rise to enlightenment. So if we think of this third aspect of Buddha nature, that uh, these uh, networks can be stimulated to grow, then we understand the role of the teacher, the enlightening influence, the model that the teacher uh, uh, serves as on many, many different levels, and the vows as well. These are things that will strengthen these networks together with bodhicitta and the understanding of voidness. And they can be influenced like that because of their deepest nature. They're void of existing, frozen by themselves, independent, not being able to influence, be influenced by anything. So, like this, we have woven together all these different aspects of uh, the Dharma in order to be able to understand Tantra. We've brought together Buddha nature, 
Okay, brought together bodhicitta, the understanding of voidness, the understanding of enlightenment, vows, the guru, empowerment or initiations. Everything fits together very, very well. And when we understand that, then we're able to put our hearts into the tantra practice with confidence that this is an incredible method that really can be very effective if we persevere with it. Patience, not easy, but work with it. It's very effective. But slowly, gradually, and as the nature of samsara, it goes up and down. Not going to always get better every day. So, even though this has been quite fast, and uh, there are a lot of different pieces here put together, nevertheless, what we can take from this is just some sort of feeling that, of confidence, that actually everything does fit together, and tantra practice is not something which is magical and mysterious, that it can be understood, it makes sense, it makes perfect sense, and it fits absolutely consistently with all the sutra teachings as well. I mean, to just focus on that, that it fits together, right? That's the general understanding. Remember, we discussed the difference between shamatha and vipassana style. General understanding, yes, it all fits together. Then within that, you can fit in eventually the detail of how it fits together and what all the pieces are but that confidence that it all makes sense and fits together gives us a uh, self-confidence in being able to practice. It's not something crazy. Okay, so just focus on that confidence that, yes, it all fits together. Eventually I'll be able to fit in all the details, but it does fit together. It all makes sense. Remember, understanding means accurate and decisive. Okay, so now we have time for questions.
uh, what is your attitude to rituals and what if, for instance, we do some rituals but we are not sure what it means and we have to understand in the process uh, because sometimes we don't have like 100% clear understanding of the meaning but we have to do something, maybe the teacher is saying or something and then what is your attitude, what would you recommend? Do we need to do that or not? Well, ritual serves uh, many purposes. Ritual gives us a form in which to fit all the pieces. So some sort of uh, way of expressing all the various uh, aspects that we're trying to develop. Like the ritual of doing prostration is a way to give expression to our respect, appreciation for the three jewels. And uh, it, uh, all, ritual also connects us with a long tradition so that uh, we don't feel isolated. We feel the support of lineage and tradition. This is very helpful. And when we do ritual with other persons together, it uh, strengthens the uh, positive force of it, gives it more energy. And if anything, it at least uh, helps us to develop the discipline of doing the ritual, <laughs> you know, especially if we do it every day. So there are many positive things to uh, be gained from the ritual. Uh, however, the real question is our motivation of what, why we're doing it. And if we're doing it just uh, because we think it's some sort of magic and we're going to get some magic powers from this, this is uh, not going to be very helpful. And if we do it out of guilt because we told our teacher we're going to do it, and if we don't, we feel guilty, that also isn't terribly helpful. So, as uh, we have in the uh, mind training uh, text, we have the uh, five, I think they're called the five uh, forces. The five forces we have, well, one of them is the intention. So we want to have the strong intention before the, uh, doing the practice, the ritual, so some motivation. And we want to have at the end the dedication to enlightenment. So at least that we can try to add to the uh, ritual. And then habituation to habituate ourselves to that. White seed to build up, you know, this positive force from it. And eliminate all at once, you know, in our way of mental wandering, we bring it back. So we can apply these five forces from the mind training text to our practice without having you know, some deep understanding of everything that we're doing. So, as uh, we've been uh, explaining, some general idea of what's going on is enough. You don't have to fill in all the details yet. Some general idea, and not just, I'm doing this you know, like a, a young child pretending to be a mother with a doll and the, the little carriage. It's not child's place, it's not a game. Anyone else? Can we say that preliminary practices make us to get rid of our compulsiveness, compulsive emotions and actions? Is there any connection between that? Intention. Uh, yes. There are ways in Tantra to uh, transform disturbing emotions, to use the energy behind disturbing emotions uh, in a more positive type of way. This is uh, similar to what we have in the mind training texts where we speak about changing 
adverse circumstances into circumstances conducive for the path to the same principle. We need to uh, analyze a little bit more deeply. We have a uh, disturbing emotion, let's say, of anger or uh, greed. And what it triggers is what ripens from karma, from the karmic uh, force, would be you feel like doing something based on anger or aggression or based on greed. You feel like doing it. I feel like yelling at this person or I feel like uh, uh, keeping everything to myself, you know, being selfish, greedy, taking more and more. And through various meditation practices to calm down, to quiet down, and so on, it's often done with the breath, then uh, we start to uh, uh, see that there is a space between when I feel like acting out my aggression and I actually compulsively do it, and it's during that space that we can use our discriminating awareness to decide, no, I'm not going to do it. And then we refrain from acting out what we feel like doing. That's the constructive karma, constructive form of our behavior. So that's very, very important to be able to uh, recognize that space between what we feel like doing and when we compulsively act it out. And refrain from acting on the basis of these destructive emotions. Now, even if we're able to refrain from acting them out, still because of the force of habit and tendencies, disturbing emotion is still going to come up and we're still going to feel like yelling at somebody, but we don't do it. So if we want to engage in practices to transform these disturbing emotions, we have to have already reach the stage in which we don't act on the basis of them. In other words, we're at the stage where, okay, I'm not going to yell at people, I'm not going to hit them, I'm not going to act out, you know, my feelings of desire, you know, attachment, I'm not going to cling to anybody, not trying to force myself sexually on anybody, all of that. But even if we never act that out, still, the disturbing emotion is going to be arise of wanting to feel like doing that. This is what we can work with to transform. So with this desire, specifically this uh, desire for sense objects, beautiful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, and it can be in a sexual sense, you know, with a, a partner, that we can use that desire for this, you know, that attraction to this. We don't act it out. But you can imagine it, and it helps us to generate a blissful, under, blissful state of mind, a very happy state of mind, which you then use to focus on voidness with the aim of bodhicitta. Then that's a transformation of it that you use that desire in a sense to, do you know the word kickstart? Like, you know, you kickstart the car if it's uh, stuck, you know, so you do something you know, like that and uh, it will start. So to generate that, uh, at least in our imagination, a blissful state of mind of imagining something, not pornographic, 
But imagining something that gives us a more blissful state of mind, you don't just sit there and bliss out, but you, uh, you know, oh, I'm so happy. But uh, to use that to focus on voidness, that's the transformation that's done in Tantra. But very sophisticated, actually. So, for instance, I particularly have a great deal of uh, desire and attachment to food. I like good food. And so, rather than, you know, going out and, you know, gorging myself on all sorts of uh, uh, delicious food all the time, I can imagine, like in these offerings, to use that desire for food to imagine enjoying wonderful food. That's, you know, one of the offerings that you make, the offering of taste. So, wonderful, you know, you feel, oh, this is really great. And you use that elevated state of mind, you know, because blissful state of mind is the movement of the winds, of the energy, is more concentrated. It's mixed with, you know, grasping for true existence and all that, then it's very disturbed. But without that, very concentrated, you use that to focus on voidness of me who's tasting it, the taste and the food, etc. So what you're actually working with is the energy of the disturbing emotion. The energy of that desire is something which can be then molded, not out of control, as it is in a karmic situation, but it can be used to concentrate and elevate our mind, our awareness, in a blissful way. We're working with the energy, the subtle energy of the disturbing emotion. And rather than that energy going wild and leading to compulsive behavior, we want to harness that energy and use it because it goes in the direction of concentrating the mind in a state of blissful awareness, you know, great happiness, because you get something that you like. So that you use for focusing on voidness. It's more focused in the sense that it's more intense. Energy is more intense. Similarly, aggression. You don't act out aggression, but you imagine yourself in the form of these really forceful figures. You know, Yamantika, all the flames and, you know, like that. And what are you stamping on? You're stamping on your selfishness. So you harness the energy of that aggression to direct it toward Stop acting like a baby, stop acting like an idiot, get it together, and, you know, act like, try to act like a Buddha. But without the anger of, you know, I'm such a sinner and I'm so horrible, without that. So with the understanding of voidness. So what's called transforming the disturbing emotions into a path is really very advanced. Requires all these steps beforehand. You're not going to act out the disturbing emotions. You're very sensitive to your energy. You have some understanding of voidness, bodhicitta, etc. So the question is uh, about uh, the uh, uh, in uh, India, we have the uh, development of tantra both in the uh, Shaiva uh, forms of uh, general word Hinduism. And we also have in Buddhism. So uh, uh, particularly we find this in Buddhism in terms of the yogini 
uh, tantras or mother tantras, another name for it, and you have something similar in the Shaiva tantra. So is there an influence from one to the other? And it is very true that uh, there are many, many things which are shared in common between the two systems of uh, tantra. Many things, too many to start listing. And even more interesting, we find in the list of the Mahasiddhas, many of the same names in both lineages, Shaiva Tantra and Buddhist Tantra. But uh, to be able to say that uh, one was the source and it influenced it in the other, historically, that's impossible to prove one way or the other. All you can say is that there was this common set of beliefs and practices, and both sides influenced each other back and forth. There was dialogue. They shared experiences, shared practices. And so if we look at what is the most significant difference between the two, then it comes down to Shaiva practices are done on the basis of assertion of an Atman. And there are many different assertions within the different schools. And the Buddhist one is uh, without. I mean, it's the assertion of Anatma, you know, not a truly existent self. That's the significant difference. Other than that, there's a tremendous amount which is uh, shared in common. And in the Buddhist uh, tradition with Bodhicitta, we're aiming for enlightenment as defined in Buddhism. And in the Shaiva systems, we're aiming for moksha, liberation, as defined in its system. Those are the differences. So depending on which system we're practicing, we need to be aware of what is the most significant thing. And the most significant thing is either the understanding of Atman, get rid of the ignorance about that, and the aiming for moksha on the one side, or bodhicitta and the understanding of voidness on the other side. These are the things that are most essential. All the rest are tools, common toolkit. Okay, so we need to call this uh, session to a close. So again, we end with uh, dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. <laughs>